Ecclesiastes, we come to the end of this study that we have been going through for the last three summers. And uh, I hope that you have learned something from it, as I have been studying it from the summer months and the summer weeks that we have spent doing it. This last portion of the text, the title was taken from uh, a, a book written by G.K. Chesterton, um, um, Audacity, and, and I haven't read the book. I wish I could find a copy of it, but I, I have written, I've read a lot of his quotes in one chapter. He says, as I was saying, as I was saying, uh, what he was saying, listen, what I have to say to you this morning, I've said before, but I want you to get it. So, so just, just hold on. There might be something for you to hear this morning. Don't turn me off. Not me, I mean, but the, 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 the writer himself. Several weeks ago, I presented to you the name G, um, Samuel Beckett and shared with you that in the 60s, Beckett was one of the best-known playwrights uh, from Ireland. And uh, one of his best works was Waiting for Godot. And the, the whole idea is a play on words, Waiting for God. And in that books, book, um, Beckett showed people playing, making fun of the church, as it were, waiting for God to come, and no God showed up. Well, another of Beckett's wonderful works was a play called Breath. Breath. The play was 39 minutes long. Imagine paying to go and see that many people did. He's talking about existence, which the book of Ecclesiastes is talking about. The curtain draws open. There's a pile of rubbish on the stage. Illuminated by a single light. The light dims and then brightens. A little before going completely out. There are no words, no actors in this drama. Only a sung track with a human cry. Followed by an inhaled... Beckett is saying that's what life is like. It's like a breath. You have it, and then you don't have it. That's almost the same as David said in Psalm 39, that our lives are like a breath. It is here, and then it is gone. The problem is, what do we do between? What do we do between death, uh, life and death? I remind you again of the words told by C.S. Lewis about his wife when his wife asked someone, what are you going to do when death comes? And she said, I hope that by the time my time comes, they have found a cure for it. <laughs> How we wish. And the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying, there's something to do with why I am here. And he went through 12 chapters telling us and now he comes to the end. And like Beckett is looking back on life and saying, I have looked, I have looked at life. And this is what it's like. But it's the same thing that the writer in Ecclesiastes is doing. He's looking back on life. He's coming to some conclusions. 
he's coming to the end of the matter and he says, this is what it's like. And that's what I want to take you through for the next few moments. The first thing he does is that he gives us, give us a personal reflection. A personal reflection. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words that were true. Personal reflection. Chapter, chapter 12, verse 9 tells us, first of all, that as the writer reflects, he was extremely studious. Extremely studious. Look at what he does. He tells us that what he did in his learning, when he communicated that to those to whom he was writing it, they became wise to reality. These were not words that actually caused the mind to fog in things. As I was studying this, I thought of the little story I heard of the little boy who was walking with his father by the, the, uh, on the sidewalk and saw something in a glass window and said, oh, Dad, can I have that? And the father said, The inner thirst for which the young mind can grasp for what their eyes see befuddles me. And I am simply overcome by the fact that you have so much and yet you want more. I decline your request. And the kid looked up and said, I don't get it. The father said, that's it. <laughs> Sometimes we can use words and nobody understands what we're saying. But the writer wants to make sure that what he's saying imparts knowledge to those who hear it. He wants to make sure that when he speaks, people become aware of life as it is, not life as they hope it to be. And we have gone through that from chapter 1 to the present. What is knowledge? Knowledge is the accumulation of facts with the hope that by knowing, I might be able to make wise decisions of life. This is not talking about what kind of a boat you want, what kind of a car you want, what kind of a house you want. It's talking about what happens when you, when you come to the end of a day and you begin to reflect upon the day you have lived and you ask yourself the question, what did I do today that's lasting? What did I do today that has any meaning for tomorrow, for my destiny? He imparted knowledge. He was a true teacher. Uh, I, I don't mean by any means to, to embarrass my wife, but she's been studying for the last little while to get some papers done. And as I would walk by her study at home, I would hear, I hear her under her breath talking about how these teachers do not make these things clear for her to understand. And under my breath, I say, don't forget that you are a teacher. <laughs> what you want for them, you want to make sure they get. 
I don't want to just 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 spew off things. I want to make sure that when I speak, I speak in a way that improves their sense of belonging, of being. He was studious. So what did he do? Look at what he did. He studied and he pondered. That is, he weighed things carefully before he communicated them. He wanted to make sure that what he was observing was consistent with reality as he knew it. The things he pondered were not hurriedly done. The same word is used for Mary. When she heard what what was said of Jesus, she pondered all these things in her heart. He pondered them. He wasn't careless. He was very studious. He searched out. He went beyond the surface. He didn't stop halfway. It was more than an effort. What he actually searched out was to go into depth. He didn't cut corners. He didn't try to find a way in which he could hurriedly say in a few words what someone else would say in a dozen. He searched it out. One of the things Dr. Howard Hendricks used to say to his students at Dallas, students, when you become a preacher, don't cut corners. Study so that you may be approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed. That's what you bring to a congregation comes from being a serious student of God's word. You search it out. You get the hard text. And you look at those words of Jesus and you say, now what does this word mean? What is the source of this word? Why did Jesus use this word in this context? It is not simply writing it out and that's it. He searched it out. It's a very strong word. And then he arranged the words. What he studied, he arranged so that we have in the Proverbs, because he's the same writer, you see the words, the balance in which he writes, the comparisons that he makes. All through the Proverbs, you get wise saying. You read chapter 1, it tells you that what is written here is going to help a young person to be wise, to make good decisions, to be righteous, to be, to be clear about the company he or she makes. He, it was not careless words. Careless words. So he was studious. You know, one of the things that frightens me is that today with communication and with technology, it's easy to cut corners. Easy to cut corners. If I'm not not prepared by Thursday, I can go to the internet and get a message and give it to you like it belongs to me by just going on the sermons. They are there a hundred times over. But my friends, nothing that was not pondered or searched or arranged properly will communicate to you what God wants you to hear. You will be able to sense immediately that that is something borrowed. That was not the case with this man. Secondly, he was not only studious, he was serious. 
Look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find delightful words. In other words, he wanted to say it just right. He wanted to say it in such a way that he was pleased that the way in which he said it communicated precisely what he wanted the people to hear. Why? Because he was dealing with life and death issues. He was dealing with the lives of people. I'll never forget the first time I had a funeral for a stillborn baby. Here's a mother weeping. Here's a father standing there with his lips tightly gripped. And here we were with this little white coffin. And I stood there. And the question was, what do I say? I don't want to say you know that all things work together for good to those who love God. They knew that. I wanted to be able to say a word that will say, thank you for saying it. Not that you simply say it. This is exactly what he's saying. I try to find delightful words to make sure that this word will, will work, will communicate. Why? Because he was dealing with truth. Sir Francis Bacon, it is said, said this, Reading maketh a man, speaking a real ready man, and written an exact man. He wanted to be a man with in intellectual integrity. Intellectual integrity. He was not writing for profit. I mentioned to you the other day that there are pastors today suing their churches because they're writing books from their sermons and they want to make sure they get their cut of finances from it. And when the churches do not respond, the pastors are taking churches to court for the sermons. Imagine that. They, Solomon was not writing for profit. He was writing because people's lives were held in the balance. They were born. And now they're closer to death. And have they dealt with the issues to make sure that when death came, they were ready for it. He was not a farce. He was a real instructor. So there you have his personal reflection. Look at his personal perception. Ecclesiastes 12, 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads. The masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. I saw the face of the young people when I got to this verse. The writing of many books is endless, and the excessive devotion to books is wearying to the soul. <laughs> what is he telling us? He's dealing with the gift of knowledge, or scholarship as I call it. The gift to know, to have a mind capable of comprehending truths that you were not born with, and truths that goes beyond, say, beyond sight. I want to begin with the end instead of the beginning. Look at what he says in verse, verse 11. All of human knowledge comes from one shepherd. 
all human knowledge comes from one shepherd. He's showing that no amount of scientific, philosophic, whatever kind of development that human beings can come up with, it has been given to them to be able to comprehend, to be able to see, to be able to dissect and to come to conclusions. God is the one who gives knowledge. Richard Dawkins, the darling of present-day atheist, he's a professor of philosophy at Oxford. And recently, Dawkins came up with the idea that Oxford should test students who are coming in to make sure that they have no belief in God. And if they do, they should not be allowed to enter. Do you know what the motto of Oxford is? The Lord is my light. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? A man who has the gall to know the mother of a school looked to God first and then taught to say, anyone who comes to the school must disbelieve in him so that we can tell you what we think. Dartmouth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Truth is not in the domain of the created. Jesus made that plain in John 18. I am come to bear witness of the truth. Please listen to these words. Two scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of souls and spirit, of joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Do you know of any written literature that's capable of doing that? The only written source that can penetrate the human heart are the inspired word of God. Listen to Daniel chapter 2. After the king asked Daniel to repeat, uh, to um, tell him what his dream was, interpret it. Listen Listen to Daniel. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings, set up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and in the light. God is the source. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He who argues against God argues against the very power that makes it possible for him to argue at all. This is the way it says. Truth comes from one source. From one shepherd. And when you have this book, my friends, upon which your life 
and your death depends, you better be sure that it is true. You better be sure that it is true. So that you have the source of scholarship. Look at the grief of fellowship, of scholarship, the grief. <laughs> it says, many books. I called Siri. You know who Siri is. I'm getting really techy. And I said, Siri, how many books are printed in the United States every year? And like a good student, Siri gave an answer, but I don't, I didn't like her answer, so I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) You can check for yourself later on. I want to read something to you. I'm watching the time. G.K. Chesterton wrote this back in 1908. Listen to this. And I'll try to read it very carefully. The new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust in anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never really be a revolutionary. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. Hope you're following me. Thus he writes, a book complaining that imperial oppression insults the purity of women. And then he writes another book, a novel in which he insults it himself. He curses the sultan because Christian girls lose their virginity, and then he curses Mrs. Grundy because they keep it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and that then, as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principle that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces denounces marriage as a lie and then denounces the aristocratic uh, for treating it like a lie. He calls a flag a double and then blames the oppressor of Poland or Ireland because they have taken away that double. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes off his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they are practically beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds, M-I-N-E-S. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. And in his books on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against anything, he has lost the right to rebel against anything. They make you weary. Have you seen the amount of books that you can find when you go to a bookstore? 
on the one hand they say this, on the other hand they say that, on the one hand they say this, and it, it, it will keep going. How can any young person look at a book on morals and one on ethics that contradicts each other and come to any conclusion? It's a weariness of the soul. It confuses the issue. It is like the little boy who walked with his father and said, can I have this? And when the father was finished, the kid said, I don't get it. I can tell you what, what privileged people, brilliant minds, what they say about life, and you, you scratch your head and you say, how can they come to a conclusion like that? Well, if you read enough books, my friends, I tell you, one of the most brilliant minds in Canada was a fellow by the name of Charles Templeton. And Charles Templeton came into real conflict with God. He was a contemporary of Billy Graham with Youth for Christ and was a better speaker than Billy Graham by Billy Graham's own confession. And Charles Templeton went to a university, Ivy League University, and while there, books planted in his mind that no good God would ever allow people to suffer. He went to Billy Graham, and he said, Billy, you've got to stop preaching this thing about what the Bible says. And Billy Graham said, Charles, it is my conviction. And Charles Templeton walked away, lived in Toronto for years. Just before he died, Charles Templeton was interviewed about his journey in life. And the interviewer said to Charles, Mr. Templeton, of all that you have left behind, what do you miss the most? And he bowed his head, turned, tried to wipe the tears from his eyes, and he said, I miss Jesus. I miss Jesus. See, my friends, we can, we can write, we can read books, and my word, you know that I'm not against books. But we can read so many conflicting issues on who Jesus is and why he couldn't have done this and, and so on. And by the time we're finished, we don't know whether we should believe or not. And our souls become susceptible to doubts and to fears. And the only thing that can bring us back to that is God, his word. His personal conclusion, his personal conclusion, verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, he gives the prescription for significance. The prescription for significance. Please listen, friends. I was, I was, <laughs> I just couldn't believe it this past week. Now, please understand me. I am, I am not for killing animals. I, I used a gun once in my life. 
was in eastern Oregon somewhere. I shot a gopher and the silly thing didn't die. Started to jump all over the place and I said, here, take it, try this. I've never, I've never held a gun. I'm not an anti-gun person. But I couldn't believe how upset the world got over one lion that was killed in Africa. A, a TV host, Jimmy, Jimmy Camel or whatever his name is, because I don't watch him, so I don't know. But I heard him on the radio. He was giving this story, and the man began to cry because of a lion that was killed. Friends, 50 million babies are aborted, and you don't hear anybody crying. How, how, we, have, we have changed. We give significance to animals and not to people anymore. And, and, and what the man says here, listen, every man needs to know his significance in the light of the love of God, in the death of Christ. Of course, I'm going into the New Testament now. The end of the matter is this. I was saying, fear God and keep his commandments. What is he saying? That life is sacred. Life is not to be treated carelessly. We're made in the image of God. And how is it it can be a baby when a royal family is pregnant, but a fetus when a peasant is pregnant? Life is sacred. And my friends, please listen. This is not naivety. If we treated life as sacred in the fear of God, we wouldn't have marches in Baltimore. We wouldn't have marches in Oakland. We wouldn't have marches in Toronto this past week. People who are concerned about black lives matter. Friends, black life, white life, life matters. And we can only see it when we see it in the fear of God. And we have to come to them. You see, we believe that we are so sophisticated now that our significance comes from what we are doing. Not what we believe. Animals were not made to believe in God. You were. Because you're made in his image. Fear God. He's saying there's someone bigger than you are. There is someone who put the whole thing together. And he's not only a God who is up there. He's a God who sent his son into the world. That we might have life and have it more abundantly. The prescription for significance, my friends, is to realize that life is sacred and it comes from God. And that God has given commandments. I was thinking of this. People who don't want to live by rules, you know where they are? In jail. Anyone who doesn't want to live by rules, there's a guy in Philadelphia who doesn't pay taxes and he's in jail. My daughter used to say, Daddy, you have to. And I say, Honey, just a moment. The only thing you have to do is to pay taxes and die. Whenever she comes, Daddy, you have to. God has given us commandments to keep us, my friends, from raping women, from killing children. He has given us commandments by which we can know how we are to live life in the fear of God. Why? Because, because 
we must prepare for scrutiny. God will judge the world. I know this might not be popular, but it's true. The conclusion, when all is said and done, as I was saying, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden. Jesus knows, my friends, how men plot evil. Jesus knows whether it's true that Planned Parenthood was selling parts of unborn babies. Jesus knows if the, if, if the, if the, if the works that destroys the people, how it was done, why it was done, who did it, and we might get away with it here, but my friends, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after death, the judgment. We can't escape it. We can't escape it. But there's a way in which we can. There's a way in which we can escape the judgment. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to give life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of God. Do not marvel, said Jesus, at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tomb will hear his voice and will come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, there are those who believe that God is too loving. God is too loving to send anybody to hell. I have no pleasure in saying, friends, that when you don't want the hell that Christ endured on the cross, you must endure it yourself in the judgment. Those are not my words. That's the word of God. I close with these words. Many people complain that believe in a God of judgment will lead to a more brutal society. The loss of believing in a God of judgment can lead to brutality. See, if I believe I don't have to answer to anybody, I can do whatever I want. I can cheat. I can kill. I can maim. To believe that there is no God, no judgment, can lead to violence. Because if I have to answer to no one, then anything goes. And you and I must live, even as Christians, that we must one day give an account to God. Thank God, not for judgment, but for rewards. But if you are here this morning without Jesus Christ, you have never trusted him, I implore you, call upon him, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to spew off words. But like the writer of Ecclesiastes, I pray, Father, that, Lord, what I have said would have been studied, pondered, and put together in such a way that the people have learned something that will cause them to make decisions of life that will change their future. Not with uncertainty, but certainty. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. In Jesus' name, amen.